and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. In each programme we'll focus on a particular movie that we chose in advance. We're going to review it, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always, we're going to end with our recommendations for films based on this week's films. So they're going to be as close or as distant as we like based on themes or styles or actors or writers or anything like that we kind of desire. And we're into the 40s on episodes now, so if you don't know who we are, then, uh, well, go, go back and listen to some of those. Um, my name's Sam Knowles. I'm a teacher and writer about uh, literature, pop culture, books, films, stuff like that. Um, and he is Rob Maycorn. He's spent years um, in the film industry and is now carving out a career um, doing bits and pieces of creative work at the same time as uh, running a charity. Yeah, I get by. This week, Sam, yeah. um, in a still, I think, an attempt to redeem yourself uh, from, from a, yes. a couple of weeks ago, you chose a film. Yes, and I chose the 2010 film, The Book of Eli. They say the war tore a hole in the sky. Only a few survived. That was 30 winters ago. I have been walking ever since. The Book of Eli is a Hughes Brothers film starring Denzel Washington, um, Gary Oldman, Mila Kunis and various others. There's a cameo from Francis Gold Store. Um, among others, there's the Torah Mike of Gambon, I think, a couple later on in the film. Um, and it tells the story of a lone walker, played by Denzel Washington, who's travelling through a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Um, and it's 30 years after some unspecified event, although it transpires throughout the film and it's, it's some sort of war, some sort of nuclear war. Um, and... Washington is walking through this wasteland guided by a book and the course of the film um, explains to us what that book is and why he's walking and why other people want the book so much, namely Gary Oldman in this case. Rob, your thoughts? Uh, well, I think I mean, it's worth issuing a, a blanket spoiler warning for this episode. The film features a couple of reveals, shall we say? Mm. That it's going to be hard to talk about without spoiling things. So this is a, a hard warning, folks, that there will be spoilers of the entire film in the podcast. Book of Eli. How can I describe Book of Eli? Book of Eli, to me, was kind of like a McDonald's Big Mac. <laughs> Explain yourself. In the, Whilst I'm watching it, I'm enjoying it. It's a fun romp. Mm-hmm. Yes, I thought that that was, if I had to just use one word to describe it, enjoyable would be that way. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, it's a fun, enjoyable romp of a film, but it's kind of forgettable as soon as it's done. And if you take a step back and think about it for a second, you realise the problems with it. Mm. But that, like, the, I think we have to remember that whilst this podcast we are looking for deep meaning, we are looking for critical analysis, we are looking for sort of cultural reviews of films a lot of films just exist to be entertaining so we can't judge a film too harshly when it's anything that's setting out to entertain 
but I would say that with this film, entertainment was was all it it was offering me really. Mm. I think there are some gaping sort of narrative problems with it, as in I'm not entirely sure why Mila Kunis was in it. <laughs> she no. added absolutely nothing to the plot at any point whatsoever. No, um, she's very pretty. She's a wonderful actress. She brings a I suppose a a, a audience segment to it in a business kind of way but from a narrative point of view that character didn't really add much to the story the and this is where we get into spoiler territory the book that he's guarding is the King James Bible and I'm sure in time we're going to unpack what it means to have a big budget film in which many many people die to protect the Bible um, and it's revealed right at the end that Denzel Washington character is blind. Despite the fact that you've seen him fight people throughout. And it was clever thinking about that a couple of times in the film, like he's talked about smelling people and feeling things in the road. And there's, it, when, he, when he meets the, um, the cannibal family, or the cannibal couple, he does, they say, didn't you see the sign? He said, oh, I must have missed it. Mm-hmm. Lovely being blind. He wouldn't have seen a sign. Mm. Um, but it's never explained how if he is blind um, and he must have been blind prior to the war to learn to, speak, to read braille because post-war there clearly has been no uh, schools but he was a soldier so he would be a blind soldier um, if he was a blind soldier how did he learn to be such a fighter that he was so there are sort of, when you think about some of the problems in it it kind of unravels. But that isn't to say it was an enjoyable filming experience to watch. Yes. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I, I find your review of it kind of says what I want to say about it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I don't want... I, I wouldn't want anyone to come away from it thinking, oh, that left me unsatisfied. Um, I think this this is a... a Great enjoyable film. That adjective great doesn't mean it's it's the the plot is anything to to go over because it isn't, you're right. I mean I you it it's a testament to the number of plot holes in this film that you've picked up on three or four that I just haven't listed and I have a whole list in there, including mm. the fact that the King James Bible in the Braille edition um would it would come to a stack of books about six feet tall. Yes. <laughs> um, that thing he's carrying is the width of one of the Gospels in Braille. Also the fact that at the end, they just take his word for it. That yeah. That's the Bible. Like you can just see him halfway going through and, and God said, everyone must give me all the money. And they, they, they have no recourse. It's just literally one person going, well, this was the Bible. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was. There were there were so many things that didn't work about the film. But I think if you don't think about it too much, and that's a strange thing to say on a podcast, we're about to do exactly that. Um, <laughs> but if you don't think about it too much, it's quite fun. Um, yes, really. It, it, just thinking from a production point of view, that the colouring at the beginning is an opening shot of a. a greenish underwater looking woodland and then 
throughout you've got this sort of washed out ashen colour to it that was was beautifully um, produced it was beautiful to look at um, some of the some of the choices in music were great I mean Al Green How Can You Mend a Broken Heart um, some of the um, these sort of throwaway lines from Denzel Washington were brilliant again about music that she thinks uh, Midgillis thinks he's made some some meaningful pronouncement to do with to do with uh, God, and it turns out he's just quoting um, Folsom Prison Blues. So it's mm. just jo- Johnny Cash line. There were there were some there were some lovely little things like that. Um, I thought Gary Oldman was brilliant. Um, was I mean the character wasn't brilliant. Just Gary Oldman was brilliant. Yep. Um, that maybe because Gary Oldman's a brilliant actor, but it was just. He was just brilliantly camp. Um, that that's another, um, I suppose, a slightly less glaring plot hole. But he, um, you wondered why he had so much thrall over the people he did have mm. thrall over. Like he's he he was the the sort of bookish intellectual type, and I use the word camp because that's what he seemed like when he was angry, but. In in general, he's he's not not much to throw his weight around, um, and yet all of these these biker gangs seem beholden to him, and you wonder how he's got that power over them, when the one thing that he does have over them is the fact that he's literate, and there aren't any books. So the one the the one superpower that he's holding over the heads is completely useless. I'm I'm a big fan of of end of the world films. Always have been, but this film does play into those tropes. Like you say, as you say, he is quite a slight man, clearly not a physical presence, and the skills he have, you think, well, that doesn't really apply in 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 a end of the world scenario. He hasn't got money. He hasn't got. Um, the one thing he does have is water, I suppose. That's the one thing he's got inside is water. But given that yeah. the lowliest slave knows where that water comes from, mm. I can't imagine that, that he isn't overthrown pretty fast. Yes. Yeah. Um, things I did like about this film... Um, something like... You, you said that Midikunis is... There is no point to her presence in this film, and you're right. She's a, a nothing character. It's it's bizarre what she's doing there, but it was interesting to have a female character in a narratological position where you normally have a love interest to demonstrably not be a love interest because she isn't, and no. I I quite like that. Um, so, be giving giving the film film credit for certain things it does. I mean the 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 chemistry through lack of chemistry between Mila Kunis and Denzel Washington, well, lack of sexual chemistry between the two was was very enjoyable. I I, I would agree. I think the film. I mean, apart from apart from Mila, you've only got sort of two female characters of note, or three, even if you lose one of which is the clearly the bait. Um, for a, a trap of um, outlaws, mm. um, which bizarrely she then turns up again as the same bait for a same trap for a different set of outlaws in like two days later, 
And you've just got to think, how, how does that person get in a situation twice? How, how does yeah. she end up being there? It's like, but there isn't much in the film beyond that. You've got um, Mila's mother, who is a, I think the blind girlfriend, essentially. Of, yes, um, uh, played by uh, Dirty Dancing Sheriff Field. Really? I did not yeah. click on that one. No. Neither did I until I saw the casters after. Um, but I think that's... You're right, it, it, it's interesting. It, it almost it, it was kind of paternal, but it was more kind of fraternal, I say, the relationship was. Hmm. It more felt like a um, an older brother looking after a little sister. Um, and I believe that is... Like, her character journey is the character journey of the film. But it isn't like... I mean, Mila Kunis's kind of cultural character is a bit more of a, a hard-line... Um, action female. She's always been. All her parts are kind of strong-willed, you know, strong female characters to, to, to use the trope. So it mm. isn't like she starts off meek. And I feel like say, romp is a great example. No one in this film has character growth. No, at all. There, there is no. There is there is story progression. Um, and, and things move along. And given my my outspoken support of Mad Max last year. There is, it's hard to kind of yell at a film for having lack of character growth. Um, but it was like it was just a series of events after one another. If you see what I'm saying, rather than, rather than any kind of character growth. But you know, fun romp. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I seemed distracted during that. It was because I was looking up Jennifer Beals. She, of course, isn't in Dirty Dancing. She's in the other ridiculous. Um, 1980s dance film in Flashdance. Um, yeah, I I see what you mean. That there's there's a sense in which nothing much happens in this film. It's a bit of a romp, but it, I, I thought that was quite enjoyable. Um, and yes. I, I've already already mentioned the way I, I the fact that I I love the way this film looks. Um, I liked the cinematography. Um, I suppose it. This says something about the plot if you're noticing the camera work rather than what's actually going on. But I like the way the camera moved during the chase scenes, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say that the one thing that really did lift the film was the camera work and the visuals of this film. Mm. C- certain shots were closer to animation than live action. Uh, I think particularly of the shot uh, when they they walk out of the now-destroyed house at the end um, with Carnegie, it's so kind of black and white sepia. It's almost Sin City esque at times. Um, yes, yeah. That I mean, that was that was some that was a film I thought of when, and certainly the um, the fight scene right at the beginning. You have um, Eli and the the gang silhouetted against um, the light at the end of the tunnel. In the mm. same sort of way, and it was—it just felt like a black and white animation film in that way, and I didn't think it was censored. I think that it—I—I it, I, I must say I'll, I'll look it up now, but I don't know who the cinematographer was. I'm just going to have a quick Google. Um, but I think the, the cinematographer was was uh, Don Burgess, not a name I know, um, but he's done quite a lot. He's done, yeah, he did Flight. Uh, Book of Eli, he did Enchanted, um, Terminator 3, Spider-Man Castaway. 
So yeah, certainly an experienced hand, but it was it was notably visually interesting. Mm. Um, and unlike many patriotic films, which fall into the trap of having, shall we say, interesting set dressing. You know, you think about films like Mad Max, brilliant film, but it's, it's interesting props and set and costumes. This didn't like the, the locations were just a room or a house or their clothes. It was more about visually interesting framing and grading and lighting. Mm. Yeah. To uh, to tell the story. Some something I wanted to to talk about in more detail was the idea of. I suppose religion is is one way of putting it, but also pilgrimage. Um, the the whole the whole story of and putting aside the ridiculous plot holes about the book. I mean, this is. The story of of the pilgrimage of a prophet like figure, and mm. Eli is set up as has almost a Christ like figure. Um, and also wanted to to talk about the fact that it felt like this film was saying interesting things about religion. Um, it's something you've, you've already mentioned how in the the fact that so many people are killed. Um, Searching for a, a book of peace, um, mm. and that's something to say about the the uh, violence of the Old Testament, for example. Um, but it felt that that parts of this film were pro-religion, pro-Christianity. But I also felt that it was it was subtly undermining it. I mean, it was saying that all of this came out of Eli's head, mm. um, and yes, he could very. I mean, he he could have memorized it fine. He spent thirty years reading the book. Maybe he knew it by heart, but maybe he didn't. Maybe he just made up certain bits, and then mm. suddenly you think, well, there's this whole religious document that's just come out of someone's head. And I think the film at that point was saying quite critical things about um, it, gospels that are delivered by single people, for example, about the anthropic nature of of certain organized religions yeah i think there's it's interesting that at the end the the last shot you see of the books is and putting it in with all the other religious tomes mm. um of the year but it is it, like there's obviously there's a lot of religious sort of symbolism in this and religious um iconography and overtones but it's also religious text you know like he, he does talk as if he's hearing the voice of god in his hand and if we believe the narrative and him believe him not being insane then this film is saying that god was speaking to eli mm. and that this was a mission from god in that respect and so say we've got the but also i mean the other thing is like you say walking around for 30 years now it's, it doesn't take 30 years to across america so no. Presuming he started, I mean, let's say, presuming he started on the easternmost coast, down at the Florida Keys, let's say, it's not going to take 30 years to reach Alcatraz. So, you, I'm almost... We take a step back, but I think there's that kind of... The the, the, the Jesus kind of allegory there of, of the time spelt in the wilderness. Hmm. In Jesus' case, it's 40 days and 40... Uh, 40 days? 30 days? Yeah, 40. 40 days in the wilderness. Um, and this was 30 years in the wilderness, certainly. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of 
religiosity running through it, if that is a word. Mm. Um, and the idea of, of uh, not a jizz like figure, but an asexual protector. Mm. You know, there the, the, the one scene in which they Carnegie does kind of offer him a girl for the night, um, Mila Kunis. And he uh, flat out rejects it until he turns out he can't. And then he takes under under broad uh, under his um, wing this young prostitute from this town. Mm. Um, and he very much has that kind of leadership quality, but in a very non-sexual way. If if Eli had turned out to have a wife and kids at some point or a lover, it would very much change that relationship. That that. I mean, that sort of almost ascetic part of him, that contributes to this idea of a prophet-like figure. I mean, you have figures from the Old Testament who do not have any familiar connections because they devote themselves to God. Um, I'm struggling now because all I can think of is what you just said, which is he does not take 30 years to walk across America. So what was he doing? Walking around in circles? You know where the West is. And then and then Mila Kunis says, well, how do you know you're going the right direction? He says, guided by faith. You're not guided by faith. You're guided by the fact that the, the sun rises in the East and sets in the West. Like, it's just, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, right. but, and whilst I appreciate end of civilization, all that kind of stuff, but, like, I have a, a solar charge of my phone in my room there now. Mm. You know, the the, the the world that goes down, I can still use my, my my iPad. You know, that's right there. I still have a compass. So unless the magnetic north of the uh, worth, which possibly has been screwed up, um, you know, it's still there. And but and the, the thing that got me, that there was clearly a scene in which they walk over a hill into like a, a grassy land. There's a shot mm. when the desert gives way to grassland and there's trees. And the idea that that land exists anywhere and yet people live in the dust bowl in the yeah but why don't people live there exactly like, <laughs> I, would, I would I would appreciate the, the, the story idea that people live there and driven it dry or whatever but it's there there's greenery there's you can clearly grow crops there of some sort because mm. things it's just like it, 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 as I say you take a step back and you're like none of this makes sense but I do want to it was incredibly fun to watch yeah. Apart from the opening in which he watches as a couple are shot and killed and raped, saying "Don't get involved," and you're kind of like, "Yeah, that's a hard way to establish a hero." Yeah, when he doesn't do anything in situations. If that was, I mean, that was, yeah, that was an argument for for not setting Eli up as a Jesus-like figure because you have that right at the beginning. But maybe that's. It, it, to give the directors the benefit of the doubt, maybe that's what they're saying. They're saying he is not a hero. He mm. cannot. He's not a religious figure. You shouldn't hold him up as a as a protected man who will will restore humanity or whatever Eli is doing in this in this film. He is he is just someone who knows that he will get killed if he intervenes in something. Although actually, you've just seen him and um, master like a gang of biker thugs. Yes. Without breaking sweat, so. And I mean, uh, you say that they're setting up to not be a religious figure, but at the same time, late in the film, he literally dies and comes back to life. 
Yeah. He he is the living embodiment of a resurrection myth. You know, he, he gets, you see him in town get shot in the back, which he walks off. Then he gets shot in the stomach. I know I'm 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 no doctor and I'm, I'm no soldier, but my understanding is if you get shot in the stomach, you don't then walk for three days to Alcatraz, and then have time to dictate the entire of the King James Bible before you die. You see, I, unless God's on your side. I thought it was even more ridiculous than that. I thought he got shot in the leg, like, and then he was walking along, not limping. Oh, he's got a big patch on his chest where, 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 the, where the blood was. So I assume he got struck in the oh, stomach. Yeah, well, okay, fine. <laughs> I'd obviously stop paying attention to details by that point. And, yeah. and, and I think it's worth noting that that's absolutely fine reaction to, to this film. The film was—it's mm. a good, fun romp of a film. No, like no one who made this film expecting two, you know, two vague academics in England to sit and talk about it for half an hour in terms of you know religious overtones. No. Um, but it's still still worth doing, I think, in that respect. Yes, I do. I mean, the the last thing I wanted to say was just the fact that that twist right at the end, where you find out that he's blind, is just there was something brilliant about that that made me think, oh, right, that mm. I I want to go back and watch the film again now because now I understand things. And that moment in a film is beautiful that's 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 one of the best things about watching a film is to have a twist where you think oh that makes sense i've got to go back and watch the whole thing again now that's what watching a film should be about i think i think just just before we move on to recommendations the one other thing that got me is if the book is in braille and thus he's very happy giving it up because he knows it himself hmm why didn't he just give it up earlier when people were dying? <laughs> yes. You know, but, he could have been like, I'm leaving town, I'll give you the book when I'm done. I'll leave it here, come pick it up, but I want to get out of town. Yeah. You know? He could have just left the book and gone. Yeah, it's like, Frost at all would have lived, Michael Gambon would have lived, Mila Kunis wouldn't have been threatened, that old couple's house wouldn't have been shot to bits. It would have been fine. It's it's just Gary Oldman himself wouldn't have got shot. Yeah, it, it, it just like anyway, take a step back. Anyway, Sam, before we get anyway, lost in the trap, yes. Recommendations. Um, a fair number of recommendations this week because although this film wasn't great, it was very enjoyable and very fruitful for thinking about other things. Um, I've got got a whole number of recommendations the first few of which really don't count because they're not films but I'm going to say them anyway um, there is a really good book called The Gone Away World by Nick Harkaway who is the son of John McCarry um, and I mean it's, it's this sort of thing as well there may be plot holes but don't think about it too much, and it's it's a really enjoyable read. It's the it's the book version of this film. Um, it's the Gone Away World. And Brilliant. the second one I want to mention is um, well, it's another book, but it was turned into an opera, so I feel like it's sort of more like a film. Um, is Waiting for the Barbarians, which is written by Jem Goodseer and turned into an opera by Philip Glass, because. 
And the reason I mention this is because the idea of hiding your soul through sunglasses is something that ha- happens a lot in Ragnar the Barbarians. Um, certainly it becomes a, a important visual motif in the opera when it's made visual. So that, that was something that I was, I was thinking of when I was watching this. But on to films. Um, and the first one is one, one you've already mentioned, actually, and it's one that you were more enthusiastic about than I was at the time. But actually, I feel like it's the better version of this film. So um, I'd say Mad Max Fury Road is much better than this, and it's the same sort of visual experience. Um, it's very enjoyable, and... Seeing this, seeing what I enjoyed about this film made me want to really go back and watch Fury Road because actually there's lots more to enjoy in that. Fair enough. And the second one was brought to mind by the um, the choreography of the fight scenes, um, which Denzel Washington worked on with a, a martial arts expert, who's an American martial arts expert, but in um, Filipino martial arts. Um, and this made me think, um, particularly that scene with the with the gang of raiders at the beginning of Kill Bill. Mm. So those are my two for this week. Fair enough, fair enough. I did think about the, you were still on mine, but luckily you haven't. So my Good. first recommendation I'm going to go for is the 2009 film The Road, based on the Cormac McCarthy book. I will say this for anyone who's watched... People could be alive but not in their own. The road is not a fun romp. <laughs> no. It, it, it is not. <laughs> it is beautiful and it is poetic and it is heartbreaking and it is one of the best end of the world films I've ever seen. But it is not a fun romp. It is an emotional drama, it is an emotional rawness of a film. Mm. Um but it is outstanding and it is part of what this of because Eli was trying to trying to evoke was I felt the road style of of, of apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. But to swing wildly from one end of the film to the other, my second recommendation is the t- film from last year, Jupiter Ascending. Oh yeah. <laughs> now Jupiter Ascending is is a film that was, I think, unfairly lambasted by. <laughs> Almost everybody who saw it. I have got a lot of time for this film. I think it's a well-made, well-written, well-shot and fun space opera in the grandest sense of opera. It is... I think it is intentionally silly. It is intentionally overblown. It is, in many ways, I would say, as close to Lovecraft in horror in space you're going to get that feeling of utter helplessness at the enormity of what you're up against and I just think it's it just seems like fun but I will say that it was in, in two disclosure it was torn apart by almost every critic of the day and most people who've seen it shared that view but I, I will champion it um, as a underrated gem of modern sci-fi cinema it was widely perceived to be Eddie Redmayne shafting his own chances for an Oscar which he then didn't go on to do but he, they 
critics thought that this was this had put pay to him getting an Oscar for Stephen Hawking being in mm. Jupiter Ascending. But I think they they were missing the point. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's akin to going to an opera and complaining that there's a lot of singing. You know, <laughs> like it, it right. wasn't seeking to be Moon. It wasn't seeking to be the Road. It wasn't seeking to be the Book of Eli. Um, it was seeking to be a pulpy, you know, science fiction romp from the thirties. Good. Um, yeah. To which it was very successful. But anyway, that's just my my personal sort of cross to bear and, and flag to wave. <laughs> Well then, if you um, want to come and discuss films with us on Twitter, you can get in touch with both of us at Prestige Podcast. You can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And you find just me at Life underscore Academic. Brilliant. And so next week, it's my choice again. Yes. And after the up and down reviews of Idiocracy Lost which I'm feeling I'm going to have to go a bit more a bit more kind of uh, I don't know mainstream but uh, maybe bring some harmony back to, to, to our reviews of these films Right. Um, so I am going to go for a film that I um, kind of I think I only saw on VHS well after the fact but it was kind of the launching of a couple of careers um, and that is the 1997 film Good Will Hunting. Brilliant. Um, and we'll pick up with that one next week. So this week, guys, we'll see you back here for another episode of The Prestige. See you then. Bye. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr!